This morning's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. It can be found started on page 977 in the Bible under your seat. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. <clears throat> Happy to be worshiping with you this morning. Glad you all made it out in the frigid tundra weather that we're experiencing. I discovered my car this morning under what I think that stuff is that paleontologists pull woolly mammoths out of, like <laughs> permafrost or, or whatever that's called. I'm pretty sure that's what my car was buried under. So I took Ashley's. Um, so <laughs> glad to be with you this morning. If you're visiting today, welcome especially to you. Um, after the service, we'll be having room at the table, which if you're, if you're new here, room at the table is when we take some special Time as a, as a church community to, to share what's called the Lord's Supper, and then we follow that up with, with a big meal. If you're visiting today, please feel free to, to join us for, for the meal. Get to know some folks. So we're, we're going to jump in right, this, right away this morning. We're continuing in our Recalibrate series. It's a, a series that we did last year and we're doing it again this year just to sort of reorient ourselves, recalibrate, retune around what we value most as a church. So we're taking four weeks to talk about gospel, worship, community, and mission. And so today we're, we're focusing especially on community. And specifically what, what, we're, what we're doing through this Recalibrate series is we're seeing how gospel, worship, community, and mission all intersect with what's called discipleship. If you're, if you're new to 
Christianity or, or even just new to this church, the word discipleship might sound very churchy, kind of like a Christianese sort of word. But basically, here's what, what we're trying to, here's what we mean by discipleship. What we mean by discipleship, it's sort of a way of describing what it is to follow the way of Jesus. Discipleship is, is modeling your life on the way of Jesus. And so one writer, in fact, describes it as sort of an, an apprenticeship to Jesus. And I really like that image. Discipleship is how we, as followers of Christ, come to be more like him. It's, it's how we participate in, in the, the kingdom that he came to bring. In the first sermon of the series, we read from one of the letters of the Apostle Paul. And we saw how, how, how Paul, he sees the death and the resurrection of Christ as this decisive victory. So the, the death and the resurrection of Christ is a decisive victory that will one day set the world right. And when we follow Jesus, when we learn his way, what we're actually doing is sort of like learning the culture of the world set right. We are, we are learning the way of life that will be practiced when the, the victory of the, the, the death and resurrection of Christ is sort of brought to fruition so it's a very powerful image. And so we, we want to be a community where that happens, where we follow the way of Jesus, where discipleship happens. So if you picked up one of the pamphlets that we've been handing out this series, you look under the community part, the principle that I'm going to be sort of tracking the most with this morning will be the one that says together for growth, together for growth. That's what the sort of community that we want to be. We want to be a community that joins together for the sake of developing people in the likeness of Christ, we want to be people who reinforce each other's faith, who encourage each other to endure, who uh, stir up one another's affection, affections for Christ, who remind each other of the love of God, who help each other when we're in need, who remind each other of the gospel. That's the sort of community we, we want to be. So let me flesh out what that might kind of be like. So this, this is sort of like a spin off an analogy that I've used before. You're right, I am reusing analogies. But sometimes you just got to shoot with whatever gun is in your holster, right? So this is the one that, that I had this week. Um, it's sort of a spin on something I've, I've done before. So we can go to the, the next slide. So imagine a young man who's, who's Chinese-American, and imagine that he's sort of like third generation. So he's been in the States for three generations. And at this point, he's sort of started to, to lose a little bit of the culture that was once, at one point for, for his family, very, very central. He's, he's sort of losing a bit of, of what it means for him to, to be Chinese. And so he decides that he's going to tap back into his ancestry, tap back into his identity as Chinese. And so he begins sort of learning the language. He begins counting days by the Chinese calendar. He starts to learn some of the customs. He, he learns place names. And, and so he's, he's trying to take on this, this culture. But, of course, he runs into a problem. Imagine that he lives right here in the Chicago suburbs, in, in Libertyville, maybe. He runs into a problem because we're not Chinese. We're not, some of us are, but not all of us. And so what he's doing is, as he's trying to take on this culture, as he's trying to tap into this identity, he's doing it while actively being assimilated back into, you know, Midwestern, suburban America, just because that's kind of how culture works. So he's sort of up against the grain of how everyone else around him is, is living. And so for him to, to be able to, to tap into this identity, it becomes very, very hard with, you know, for him. And so what's he going to do? Because he, he can't move to China. So what does, he, what does he do? Imagine that he moves to Chinatown. 
Imagine that he moves about 45 minutes south into the city of Chicago, and he gets an apartment in the Chinatown neighborhood. Now suddenly he has placed himself in a community of people who speak the language fluently. Suddenly he's part of a community that day after day is reminding him of why it's important to be Chinese, why it's a great thing to be Chinese. They're, they're counting days by the Chinese calendar, right? And so he might go to work and he might leave the city and go right back into the, the sort of Midwestern American culture that he was a part of. And, and at that point, he'll sort of be buffeted by, by the assimilating culture. And yet at the end of the day, he's going to return to his apartment. He's going to return to his friends in Chinatown and once again be reinforced back into his identity as Chinese-American. So no analogy is perfect, but I think the church is meant to be a little bit like that. I think that we as Christians have been given this identity in Christ, and yet living consistently with that identity, we're going to do that while being actively assimilated into the old ways. We're going to be trying to do that. If we're by our, by our lonesome trying to follow Jesus, we will be doing that against the grain of our entire culture. But God has given us the church. And so we as a community, we become a community that actively reinforces our identities in Christ. We are a community where, where the faith becomes compelling again, where we can be reminded of the greatness of God, invited all over again to respond to him, to define ourselves by who we are in Jesus. When the church is really together for growth, it becomes a place where Christ's kingdom is put on display because people are more and more looking like Jesus. So here's the question on the table for today. What kind of church, community, what kind of church is together for growth? So today's passage comes out of another letter that Paul wrote. We're three for three in this series. We did not plan that. Each, each of the preachers, you know, picked their own uh, passage, and each of us picked one of the letters of Paul. So I guess the, uh, it's up to Steve next week whether he's going to pick up that gauntlet or not. He's shaking his head no. All right, so it's going to be three for three, but whatever, you know. So anyway, this is a letter that Paul wrote to Christians in the Greek city of Ephesus. Ephesus was hugely affluent. There was a, a, a massive um, a number of, of Greek gods that would have been worshipped there and, and a really famous city. So he wrote this in the middle of the first century, probably just a couple decades after the death and resurrection of Christ. So let me say up front, there's a lot in this passage that I'm not going to get to. If I was preaching through Ephesians, A, I wouldn't be tackling all this in one sermon, but then B, I'd be right going into each and every detail. But since that's the, the point of this sermon is more to just see what Paul's saying about community and what he's saying about discipleship and community. I'm not going to get to every single detail, but it is an awesome passage. And so if you want to talk about it more afterward, I'm game. So totally talk to me. Um, it's a really cool passage. So what kind of church is together for growth? So first, a church is together for growth when it unifies around Christ. A church is together for growth when it unifies around Christ. So we live in very divided times. I feel like that's blisteringly obvious. But there's something especially troubling about the way that we're divided in our day and age. And this has been picked up by a number of writers lately, like Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, and Marilyn Robinson, um, who, who, who 
most famous for her novel Gilead. But another, a number of other authors have been pointing out how, how modern education, social media, there's all these sorts of factors that have been taking divisions that have existed all along, and yet they're making them so deeply felt. Every single day we're confronted by the division in our country in a very, very new way. Again, it's not new division. These sorts of divisions have always been there, but we're feeling it at this gut level that hasn't always been there. Yet through modern technology, through modern education, through a number of different factors, we're feeling it very deeply. And, and people more and more are, are entering into this sort of like fight or flight mode, right? Just at every moment of the day. So it's, it's sort of an urgent moment, a divided moment, a divisive moment. We are more set in our ways than ever. And our ways are more reductionistic and narrow than they've been in a long time. So what's happening right now is that, that this divide, it feels, we feel like the divide between people is widening. That the divide between men and women is widening. That older generations are more divided from the younger. That people of different ancestries, racial experiences, that they're more divided than ever. And it's especially difficult for there to be real connection between, between folks that are coming from different economic experiences. It's difficult to find real unity or friendship across difference. And so more and more, there, there's sort of like two, two pushes. There's the, the sort of optimists and the pessimists that are looking at this problem. You've got some who are like, all right, let's be optimistic. Let's just have unity for unity's sake, right? Let's have unity for unity's sake. And there's something to be said for that. I mean... We have to coexist. We have to all live together. And, and actually one of the, the good things about secular culture is that there, there tends to be this space for us to have a lot of difference. There's a lot of bad stuff about secular culture. One of the good things is space to be different. And yet I'm still skeptical about just the sort of unity for unity's sake thing. Because at the end of the day, if your highest values and my highest values are completely opposite, we can be polite We can work in the same office, but real, true unity, the kind of unity that works together for something, is probably impossible. It's probably impossible. Because unity requires sharing. Unity means that we have something to be unified around. But unity for its own sake doesn't really, truly bring us together. At the end of the day, what we think matters. How we see the world matters, and there are some ways of seeing the world that, that can't really be reconciled. Does this make sense? Does this, sort of, this seem truthy? So there, there's sort of the other side as well who, who recognize that unity for unity's sake isn't probably going to be that productive, and so they become very pessimistic. So for instance, one very famous author that, that lands in this camp is ta Coates. He writes mainly around, around issues of ethnicity and race. But for him, when he tries to think of unity, he, he almost always comes out on the side of the pessimist, just saying, like, I don't see a way that this thing works out. You know, he's pretty unapologetic about that. There's a number of other writers that are like him. There's this sense that some kinds of people will never be reconciled. Some kinds of people will never be united. And yet here in this passage, Paul is telling us to unify He says this, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain, to keep 
The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So here's the context of this passage, and it's pretty important because when we realize the context of this passage, we're going to realize that Paul saying this is kind of controversial. So again, he's writing to the church in the city of Ephesus in his day, especially in his culture as a first century Jew, there were just some people who could never be united. There were just some people who could not be reconciled, namely Jews and not Jews. Jews and Gentiles were two groups of people. I mean, in the minds of most Jews at the time, and frankly, in the minds of many of the Gentiles, there was this perception of, like, these are two groups of people that will not be reconciled, not truly, not united. There are just some kinds of people who can't be united. They were two groups that did not often mingle. There was often antagonism toward each other. The Jews were were seen by many Gentiles as sort of these isolated, siloed, narrow folks, just, you know, sort of absorbed in the customs of their particular religion, and and they didn't practice any of the the pagan worship around. So that was very, you know, many Gentiles were very critical of that. Gentiles were seen by Jews as sort of the elitist, privileged majority, the occupiers, it's easy for the Gentiles to criticize the Jewish religion when they're the ones with all the power. And so there's kind of this, you know, antagonistic, at each other's throats sort of, if there was peace, it was only because of, of Roman soldiers being everywhere to put down conflict, right? But it wasn't true peace, and it certainly wasn't unity. And yet something happened in the first century. In the first century, a whole bunch of Jews and a whole bunch of Gentiles started meeting together. Little pockets of them in different cities. They started getting together, sharing life, sharing meals, which was hugely significant in the first century. Reconciling with each other, loving each other, building friendships, intermarrying. Suddenly these two groups of people, the sorts of people that could never be united, suddenly were being united. They would meet together in a large group. And then in small groups throughout the week at people's homes. They came from very different walks of life, not just ethnically, but economically. And yet there they were, having all things in common. These were supposed to be the kinds of people who can't be united. So what happened? Well, Paul addresses this early on in, in the, the letter to the Ephesian church, and he's writing mostly to Gentiles. You know, Ephesus was a Greek city. I'm sure there were some Jews reading it as well, but he's, he's writing to a majority Gentiles. And since he, he's a Jew, you'd expect him to be sort of reminding these Gentile Christians that, now remember, God revealed his nature to the Jews. They don't, you know, you as Gentiles, you don't have as much to share in God's plan. You, you'd expect him if he was caught up in the same sort of disunity of his time, you'd expect him to be saying stuff like that. And yet here's what we hear from him in, in the second chapter of, of this letter. I think it, we have it on the board. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one 
new man, one new humanity in place of the two, and by doing that, making peace, so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and he preached peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So if there's some content in that passage that you didn't understand, that's totally okay. I think the, the point, though, comes across really clearly. Paul believes that something has taken place that can bring people together in a bond that will transcend age, that will transcend generations, that will transcend sex and gender, that will transcend economics, that will transcend ancestry and ethnicity, and it is the cross of Christ. Humanity's deep and pr- deepest problem is not ultimately alienation from each other. It's alienation from God. That is humanity's deepest problem. We are first alienated to him. The relationship that we have to our creator has been warped and broken. And because of that, we are alienated from each other. And God restores the relationship with himself. And he did it in a very specific way. Because there was another option. He could have had one sort of salvation for Jews, and then he could have done a different one for Gentiles. That's an option, in which case you have a, you know, a nice little way of keeping separate things separate. But instead, God chooses to restore through one man. He chooses the body of Christ offered up. One man offered for all humanity. And so no matter how different we may be, no matter how how different our background or age or whatever, we all have to go through the same means to be reconciled to God. We all have to come to the same cross. And so in this very, very important way, we are all the same. And from the beginning of the church, that has been reflected in the people of God. So consider this morning the folks that you're with. In what other context would you be sharing life with all these different sorts of people? There are people here hailing from different histories, different ages, different generations, different ethnicities, different careers, different incomes. And yet here we are. And all across Lake County, the same sort of thing is happening. I think of my my friend Louis Love. I meet with him about monthly for for breakfast. He pastors New Life Fellowship in Waukegan. If you visit New Life Fellowship, you will see people of all different ethnicities. It is the, the ethnic demographics of Lake County together to worship Jesus. I think of Christian Neighbors Church where on one side of you, you may be sitting next to someone who knows homelessness, and on the other side, someone who, who never will, and yet all of us together worshiping Jesus. Where else do we find this? 
It just doesn't happen. But in Christ, it does. And the reason why is what what Paul tells us in verse 4, because there is one body and one spirit, just as we are called to the one hope that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We all have to come to the same cross. Now, here's the thing. Paul goes on to, to, to make clear that this is not some sort of like glib, trite unity. It's not unity for unity's sake. This isn't some kumbaya drum circle. There's something real and substantial here, and unity in the church does not come without the gospel. In fact, in verse 13, Paul's going to again reference unity, and he's going to reference it as being right alongside knowledge of the Son of God. That when the church is what it ought to be, it is both unified and deeply committed to the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Those are not in conflict. They are mutually necessary. To be truly unified, we must know the one Lord. And to obey the one Lord, we have to be unified. Christ is the only thing spacious enough to fit all humanity. Here in this church, there are children and there are those facing the end of life. There are those who vote Democrat and those who vote Republican and third party. There are those who have known want and there are those who have known plenty. It struck me the other day that on my bookshelf, now I'm considering to sort of the church big C, on my bookshelf, I can pull down a book by a diehard libertarian and someone who is a self-described communist, and they're both Christians. In fact, they're both Calvinists, which is hilarious. Like, that, like it is in Christ alone that we find this kind of unity. In this room, we have sung songs written in North America in the 21st century, some written in the 18th. We have clo- we've now closed most of our ser- services with a benediction practiced in the continent of Africa through most of the modern era. And just on Christmas Eve, we did a responsive reading written in Europe in the 7th century. Just through our worship, we are unifying with believers across the globe and across time. Where does stuff like this happen? In the church. At least it should. It is in the church of Jesus, where brokenly, falteringly, but beautifully, humanity comes together. And the reason why is because there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism expressing that faith, one God and Father, one cross, one empty tomb, one hope of the resurrection, and one giant unstoppable fountain of divine grace from which we all must drink and to which we all owe our moment-by-moment existence. And yet how easy it is to divide again. How easy it is to look across the, the pew at somebody else and say, not with them, Lord. Not with that person. And when we do that, we are saying we have a, a reason to disunify that trumps Jesus' reason to unify. The cross is a big reason to unify. There's not much that trumps it if we are truly defining ourselves 
by what Jesus did. The church that is positioned for discipleship is a church that is unified on the conviction that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ is coming again. The church is together for growth when it unifies around Christ. Secondly, a church is together for growth when it uses the gifts of Christ. I'm starting at at, um, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So I'd like to stop there. There's some confusing language in in this passage, the the sort of Christ ascending, Christ descending part. And this is one of the things that I'm not going to get into at all this morning, just because I'm not preaching through Ephesians, and if I, if I were, I'd be digging in more to it. It's kind of convenient for me, though, because I was not able to make my mind up about what that meant. I read, like, multiple commentaries this week to try to, to land on it just out of, out of curiosity, and I think each and every commentary I read had a different perspective, so it was kind of like, all right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to—I w- I would not feel comfortable, except with much more study, I wouldn't feel comfortable coming down on, on one interpretation, at least not in detail, but— Here's the thing, the gist of what's being said there is very clear. And I think it comes across. The point is that Christ is king of his church, and he has given his church what it needs. That's the point. Christ is king of his church, and he has given his church what it needs. Paul says that each of us have received grace from Christ. Grace to be saved, that's how we typically think of it. When we think of the, the, the grace of God, what we think about is sort of his, his unmerited mercy to us, the undeserved mercy that we receive from, from Christ. And that certainly is the grace of God. But, but the term grace of God gets used in, in more expansive ways. It's not only the grace to be saved, but the grace to minister. It's not only the grace to be saved, but the grace to to minister, that each of us have been given grace, a gift, according to the measure of of Christ's gift. So what's Paul saying there? He's saying that each of us have received grace from Christ, grace to be saved, but here in the context, it's grace to minister, which means that each of us have something to bring. That each of us, as we unify, we are a diverse body of people with very, very different things to bring, and each of us have something to bring. And that means that whoever you are, no matter how urgent your needs, no matter how, how, how useless you feel, no matter how often you need reassurance, no matter what, you are not extra, you are not a burden, you are a gift to this church. You have something to bring. You are a gift. Here's what Paul writes about this elsewhere. It's worth quoting at length. I, I didn't put it on the slides, should have, so I apologize for that. But it comes out of, of 1 Corinthians 12, in case you, you wanted to, to, to turn there. 
I'll quote it here. So he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. By the body he means the church. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body doesn't consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, oh, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, and yet one body. You can't be anyone other than who you are. And to you, that might sound like a very bad thing. God thinks it's great. Because we all are parts of the body. We're not just one huge ear, right? We're meant to be a body. What this means is that you play a role. What it means is that without you, this body is an amputee. John Wimber, whose thought really influenced this church early on, he used to say that everyone gets to play. The work of the church is a work we share And so obviously this flies in the face of a lot of how we've been enculturated to think about church. It flies in the face of how many of us have been enculturated to think about what ministry even is. So we're a very consumeristic culture. We're a very sensationalist culture, so we like to be sort of entertained and, and, you know, whatever. And so what we end up doing is we, we bring that to church. So often we choose to, to join a church community not because it's the sort of church we can give ourselves to, but because it's the sort of church that can give something to us. And it's a vicious cycle. Because, you know, when, when the reason people go to church is for sensational speakers and music and amenities, then church staff and leaders get anxious. They want to attract people, and so they put more and more resources into attracting people And they end up perpetuating the cycle. It puts local churches into competition with each other. And meanwhile, God's people are spiritually turning into the folks from the movie Wall-E, where they're just sort of like languishing on these flying pods with like endless entertainment in their faces. We start to think of ministry as something that paid professionals do. We outsource ministry. We outsource our share in the church to paid professionals who shortly thereafter descend into depression because they can't handle it. They never were meant to. And then we're really curious about why there's so many people leaving the pastorate. It's not good for any of us because we are content with most of the body of Christ being amputated. But Paul turns this whole perception on its head. He says that, that teachers, evangelists, pastors, guys that we would normally think of as our paid ministry professionals, he says, he says that they do have a role, but it's not to do the ministry for the saints. 
It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So if we elders are doing our job here at Trinity, then we will not do everything. If we are doing our job here at Trinity Community Church, then we will be equipping the church to do the work of ministry. We are not the only ministers. We all are. This is the concept that the the reformers called the priesthood of all believers. And so when things are working right, elders and leaders, what they're doing is they're sort of facilitating and they're training and they're brainstorming and they're pouring into the body to, to... to bind up the brokenhearted, to, to protect the purity of the gospel, and to make this the kind of community where all of us can take part. Because what Paul is saying is that the church suffers. The church suffers when ministry is something only pastors do. Point in case, American evangelicalism. The church suffers when ministry is something only pastors do. It makes a flabby church, an unconvicted church. But when all believers are working together for the sake of God's glory and the life of the world, And the body builds itself up in love with Christ as its head. So bring your gifts. Bring yourself. Notice that Paul doesn't say, only use your gifts. Which is kind of an interesting thing. There's this, this was pointed out in one of the commentaries, and it's so... It's one of those things that I would have never noticed had someone not pointed it out to me, not because it's so obscure and hidden, it's like hiding in plain sight. So Paul starts listing sort of specific folks, the, the apostles and prophets, so you know, these are guys early on in the history of, of redemption, but then also evangelists and pastors and teachers. He's talking about people who are, who are gifted to pass along the, the gospel, who are sort of appointed to pass along the gospel. But what this one commentator, Peter O'Brien, points out is that he doesn't say that Jesus gave the gift of teaching, the gift of evangelism. He does elsewhere in a different context, but for this context, what he wants to get across is that he gave people, evangelists, teachers, pastors. And I think in the context, we're also supposed to, to see that he gave a bunch of other sorts of people as well. I think what Paul is saying is that it's not just the gifts, the skills that are the gift, it's the people. And so we are to bring ourselves. Oftentimes we get locked into this thing, especially you might be familiar with this if you've, if you've been a Christian for a long time or, or been associated with the church for a long time. We'll, we'll talk about our spiritual gifts and well, I have this gift and you have this gift and there's some, there's, that's very useful sometimes. But then we do this thing where it's like, oh, that need is not my gift. I'm not going to do that because that's not my gift, right? I'm going to wait until my gift comes up. Sometimes you just fill the need because we all have been tasked with the task of ministry And so at times we will use our our specific skill that we bring. At other times 
We'll just be jumping in and kind of shooting in the dark because we are all a part of this family. It's not your skills that are the gift of Christ. It's you. Christ has given you to the church. We are not our own. So the church is together for growth when it is unified around Christ, when it is gifted by Christ, and finally when it shares Christ in love. So Paul brings this whole picture home. And what he says, I'll read the, the, the verse, it says this. He says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So again, here's that theme of unity happening around Christ. He says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, it, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul tells us here to speak the truth in love. And, and of course, obviously, part of the, following the way of Jesus is, is practicing integrity and honesty. But I think Paul is actually getting at something more specific here. In Galatians 4, when he talks about telling the truth, speaking the truth, it's a phrase that he uses to talk about sharing the gospel with one another. Bringing the news of Christ. In the context of, 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 of the book so far, Paul has just been talking endlessly about the gospel. I think we are meant to see the truth that, that we're supposed to speak. We're supposed to see that as the news of Christ. The news of what Christ has done. So Paul is envisioning this united group of people, all bringing their diverse selves to the community, and they're all doing it unified around Christ as our head, Christ as the champion, Christ as our savior, Christ as our king. And they're committed not only to sort of share pleasantries with one another, but to share Christ himself to share his word, to remind each other often of what God has done. And to urge one another not just to return to the old ways, but to, to strive to live in a manner that is in keeping, a manner that is worthy of the destiny we have been given in Christ. In other words, to encourage each other along in the way of Jesus, to share his way, to link arms, to share lives. And we do that by reminding each other again and again and again of who we are in Jesus. Don't return to the old ways because that's not you anymore. To step into each other's hurt. To rejoice with those who rejoice. call each other back to Jesus. What he's talking about is discipleship. Living intentionally for one another's growth. And so what's the effect of all this? The effect of this is the kingdom of God on display. Here's what Paul says in, in, in chapter 3. He, he says, To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, the grace was given, the gift was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So again, that phrase is through the church that God has decided to reveal his wisdom to the world. So to to close, I'll return to the, the analogy that I used earlier. I think we can imagine another person visiting Chinatown in Chicago. We envision a person who maybe is not Chinese-American, has never been to China, has, has very little exposure to the culture. And yet when they visit Chinatown in Chicago, they can say, I know that this is not the full thing. I know that this is not completely a Chinese city, and yet I know that it must be like this. I think that when the church is building itself up in love, when the church is unified around Christ, when the church is bringing its gifts, when the church is sharing Christ with one another, we become that. And this would be sort of my lead into Steve's uh, sermon next week, but I think what ends up happening is that folks from our community begin to, to have this experience where it's like, I know that this is not fully the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven must be a little bit like this. We put the wisdom of God on display when we as a community are together for growth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all of this is only possible because of you. All of this is only possible because of your cross. Because you reconciled all people in you by faith through the one sacrifice. So God, I pray that you would help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. To be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Equip us, Lord, for the work of ministry and help us to speak the gospel to each other in love so that the whole body as it is working together builds itself up in love so that the manifold wisdom of God might be proclaimed before the rulers and principalities in the heavenly places let it be true of us Amen Amen